You know, sometimes we try to separate Jesus from the Word, but Jesus is the Word. You can't separate God's Word. Don't ever think in terms of the Word is one thing and Jesus is another. Jesus is the Word. That's what John said in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and that Word became flesh, right? And it dwelled and tabernacled among us. When the Old Testament prophets were prophesying, when they were saying that that uh, his word will not return void. They was talking about Jesus. In the Old Testament where it says God sent his word and healed them. He's not talking about scriptures and verses. He's talking about Jesus. He sent Jesus. God's word is only as good as Jesus is. I challenge you to find one fault in him. I challenge you to examine Jesus Christ and find one speck of anything that is not good. I challenge you to look at Jesus when he walked this earth and find one person that he did not heal that came for healing. He never told anybody, wait, it's not your time. He never said something as blasphemous as some pulpits preach that God wants you to be sick. He gave you this sickness. Such ridiculous things. Jesus healed people that didn't even know his name. He healed people that had little faith, no faith, and they said, who, who was it that healed you? The blind man said, all I know is I was blind and now I can see. <laughs> Didn't even know who it was. That's a good God. Amen. Today I want to title this, and this probably title would aggravate some, probably not most of you, because if you've listened to me over the past few decades, you've heard me address this before. Uh, so just hear me out and give me an opportunity to explain what I mean by this. The title I'm just entitling it is God a Christian. And I remember in March the 10th of 91, I started a church in Sparks, Georgia called uh, Cornerstone. When I first started the church, I named it Cornerstone Christian Church. And uh, to, the, to my amazement back then, people were constantly asking me what kind of church it was. as if they couldn't read the sign. <clears throat> it says Cornerstone Christian Church. Uh, they would say, what are you? I, I, I mean, hundreds of times I would say, over the 19 years I were there, people would say, what are you? And, and it would primarily always be other Christians. They wanted to know what I was. They, the reason they wanted to know is because they wanted to get a label on me to know if they was for me or against me. If I was to be feared or I was to be applauded. They would say, what are you? I, I would, in those days, I would say, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, we, we know that, but what kind of Christian? Are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Charismatic? What, what kind of Christian are you? Uh, and, you know, are you, and then they would start down the list, are you charismatic? I said, I'm not going to answer yes to that because I don't know what it means to you. The word Christian even is kind of like the word mama. We're all using the same word, but it means something totally different to everybody in this room. So the word Christian doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. <clears throat> and so uh, in Revelation 12 and 10, that, that verse there is talking about the accuser of the brethren. That's where it says that Satan is our accuser. He accuses the, the believers, who accuses us, the brethren, it says, uh, day and night before God. But something I want you to see here 
that sometimes is missed, the word for accuser or accuse is a Greek word, and that's what the Bible was written in. Almost all, every bit of the New Testament is written in Greek, and, and, it's, and it is the Greek word kartigora, kartigora. It's spelled with a K. If you're really interested, it's K-A-T-E-G-O-R-O, kartigora uh, or kategora, but they say it kartigora. And uh, what does that sound like to the American mind? Category. You're exactly right. That is where we get our word category from this Greek word. And it means to put something into a group or to categorize something. And uh, we do this all the time. We do this every day in our lives. And it's, and, and it's not iner- inherently wrong to put things in categories. Sometimes it can be very beneficial. But when we categorize things or by our categorizations of things, uh, if, if those... Uh, Categories that we place things in, if they carry an implicit judgment as to worth and value of something, then those, then what we're doing is we're actually joining in with the adversary of our soul. We're actually doing his ministry. We're, we're, we're doing what he wants us to do. That's, that's what the adversary, that's what it means. It's literally, his name literally, is, is as far as the adversary aspect of him, is to get people to categorize things, to categorize one another. Uh, and so let, let me just give some background here. <clears throat> now, my motive for even talking about this has nothing to do with me trying to eradicate the use of the word Christian. So make clear on that. I don't have that much time or energy, and it would be benign and unfruitful and end in unsuccess. So I'm not on a tear at all to rid our language of the word Christian or Christianity, Okay. So I want you to understand that. What I am after is how we view God in light of saying, well, I'm a Christian or I'm not a Christian or you're a Christian or would you like to pray to be a Christian and all, all those type terms because what we do and what it means is different to everybody. And so the word Christian, the word Christian itself, non-plural, only appears twice in the whole New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Uh, The word Christians, plural, appears one time. So we have a total of three times in the entire New Testament that the word Christian or Christians appears. There is never any apostle or disciple that ever refers to another person as a Christian in the Bible. That should make us pause and think about it. There is not one epistle in the Bible addressed to the Christians at Thessalonica, or to the Christians at Corinth, or to the Christians at Ephesus. So if that was a word that we were supposed to be identified with, called by, surely the Apostle Paul and the other apostles who were writing these letters would have started their letters out to all the Christians at Ephesus. But none of them did that, not one time. They addressed their epistles, their letters, to the saints, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Thessalonica, to the saints at Corinth. But notice how in our world, our Americanized particularly, but our world, we, we, we don't even use the word saint as common language among ourselves. Yet that's what the scripture does. In fact, most Christians will say and express, well, I'm not trying to be a saint or anything. How many times have you ever heard a Christian say that? I'm not trying to be a saint. 
And then they fill in the blank. That's the problem. You're not trying to be what true to yourself. You're a hypocrite. You didn't like that, did you? <clears throat> a hypocrite is just somebody that's not being true to who they are, right? When, when the Bible says be holy, God's not telling you to do holy. He wants you to do holy, but he's saying be holy. You know being is different than doing. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. And when God says be holy, he's telling you to be what he made you when you got born again. You, he, he, Ephesians 4 says you were made holy in true holiness. Instantly. It was gifted. You were made righteous. Instantly. You don't achieve it. You receive it. It's not something you work your way up to. Well, I'm finally holy. By whose standards? By whose standards? Your churches? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. So in totality, we only have three times in the New Testament that the word even appears. I'm just trying to get you to think about this. One time in, in Acts 26 and 28, Paul is on trials before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa is mocking him. Now let me give you some background. The early church was mocked by the word Christian. It means little Christ. It means little Messiahs. So the people that were using it in New Testament times were using it in a derogatory, offensive way to refer to Christians. They didn't like these Christians that was in the Jesus way cult. Because these Christians were dangerous in the sense that they were not loyal to Rome. They were not loyal or affiliated with any political parties, which there were many in Jerusalem and in Israel. So they're not loyal to Rome. So Pilate and all of the Roman government sees them as a threat. They're not royal to any political party, party so the Pharisees and the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. See, that's why they're sad, you see. They've all got these political, they're zealots and Zionists and, 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 and all these ites, and, and, and they're, not, they're not loyal to any of that. And, and they're not loyal to the Jewish religion. They're no longer keeping all the, you know, the law because they're not under law anymore. They're under grace. And that's going to put some Jewish people out of work. And so they're, they hate that. They're trying to protect their positions and their influence and their jobs and all those things. So, but when Paul is before Agrippa on trial, Agrippa... Uh, mockingly. Paul never asked anybody, no disciple, no apostle ever asked anybody, would you like to be a Christian? Or can I pray with you to be a Christian? That, that was just a totally unknown term. It's something that we have come up with on our own. It's not biblical. I told you when I went to Bulgaria on a mission trip many years ago, and I'm going into a country in Bulgaria that was a, a third world country, of course, and it, but it's greatly influenced by Muslims because it borders Turkey. And, we, and where I ministered was right on, right on the border, uh, right on the Black Sea, where the Black Sea is at. And uh, so we, we ministered there, and we, have a lot, we, had a lot of Tur we had a lot of Muslims that we ministered to. You don't go to a Muslim country and say, do you want to be a Christian? Because you just started a war when you say the word Christian there. Hello? What you say there is, do you want to know God? And they will say yes. But if you say, do you want to be a Christian, then they're going to pull out the machetes. Because they have centuries after century after 
century of the Muslims fighting the Christians and the Christians fighting the Muslims and Muslims killing Christians and Christians killing Muslims in the name of God. So you don't go into a Muslim nation and say, do you want to be a Christian? Not if you want to have any kind of life or fruitfulness in ministry because they don't want to know jack about Christianity. They, they know all they want to know. They, they, they already know all they want to know. So Agrippa says to Paul, he said, after listening to Paul talk, Paul never even brought the word up. Paul never mentioned the word. Uh, Paul just gives his testimony to him, and Agrippa says, you, you almost persuade me to become a Christian? He was mocking him. Paul didn't answer that question by saying, yes, I want you to be a Christian. He had a great opportunity. He teed it up for him. I mean, he had it teed up perfect. If, why didn't Paul say, yes, I want you to be a Christian? Pray with me if you would. He didn't do none of that. He said, I want you to be like me minus these chains. That's what I want you to be. He, he was saying, I don't want you to be a Christian. I want you to be, be like me. I want you to know God. Uh, First Peter, he, he dealt with the church that was uh, suffering because of being Christians, and, and he told them, you know, you know, buck up, guys, man. He said, if any of you are suffering as a Christian, let them not be ashamed. Actually, the interlinear Bible, the original, how they word the language, it says, it literally says that if you're suffering because of Christian, being a Christian, then don't be ashamed of that. But uh, let him glorify God in the matter. Again, he didn't tell them to be a Christian. Then the only, only the third time is Acts 11 and 26. And this is a statement that for some people say, well, this is the proof verse that we're all supposed to holler and call each other Christian. And, and it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. But if you look in verse 1 of Acts 11, it's telling you that Antioch is, not, is one of the three cities where great persecution was going on. And they were mocking these. And it says that that's when, it, was talking about, it ain't talking about the church. The world first called them Christians. Little Christ, little Messiahs at Antioch. But, it never, it, but nowhere in the Bible does it say. <clears throat> so that, that's the point. They, they were fearful of this ragtag Jesus cult, and, um, and, and they were mocking them with it. Now, what we do in our world is we insist on um, creating ways to define ourselves and we define ourselves particularly in opposition to other people, to the others. We're, we're the we, and they're the others. And, and, so we, and then we justify our superiority and a lot of times our brutality uh, in the name of our religion. And, and, and listen to this. We, we act like and we, we, we conduct ourselves like uh, as if God is condoning and supporting our religion and nobody else's. That we've got it all figured out. God's for us. He's against everybody else. Right? Let, let me say something to you. Religion assumes something that I've spoke about quite often and will always do that. And, and Religion assumes and begins at the point of separation. 
And the assumption that creates religion is that when man sinned, that God separated himself from man because of their sin. And you've heard such lies told from pulpits, all of us have, and I'm not saying they were some demonic, diabolical motive behind the minister that said it. He's just echoing what he heard somebody else say, and he thinks it's in the Bible. He's heard it so often. And the statement is this, God's so holy he can't look at sin. Now, I want to see the hands of every human in this room that has heard a preacher make that statement from the pulpit that God is so holy he can't look at sin. Hold your hand as high as you can. Now, while these hands are up, look around and all the people got their hand up. Okay? And those of you that don't got your hand up just means you didn't go to church nowhere. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Don't get mad. <clears throat> but we've all heard it. God's so holy, can't look at sin. Now, I don't have time to, to unpack that, that the answer to the thing that always people want to point to is that God forsook Jesus on the cross. And when you say that, you just reveal your ignorance because God never forsook Jesus on the cross for God was in Christ on the cross. That was God on the cross in Christ. And, and we can prove that to you. If you just read the 22nd Psalm, you would be clear it says in there that the Messiah, when he's given his life, he knows his Father will not forsake him. Confident of it. Why did he say that? Well, that's another sermon, and I have written about it. Go to Dale Young. My name's not Dale. It's Dale, D-E-L-L. -L. And uh, go to Dale, D-E-L-L Young, dot net. You'll find all kind of articles in the archives that'll help you I figure some of this stuff out. And one of them is, did God turn his back on his son? No, he didn't. If he turned his back on Jesus, you mean me and you ain't got a shot. And so this thing about assumption, if we assume that God's over here, he's holy, he's, he's symbolically waiting on the front porch to us to get it figured out and claw our way back to heaven, and we got this huge gap, this chasm, you know, and then over here is sinful, rotten man. If you assume that, then that gives whoever assumes that the ability to come up and create, and that is the birthplace of religion. And then you get to decide what, what it takes to get across the, the chasm. And so with every church, it's different. Some churches say you must do A, B, C, D, 3, 4, 5 to be able to cross the chasm. Some churches say once you cross the chasm, you're in, you know, and then some say when you cross the chasm, that you're in, but you can get kicked back out again. It's kind of like going to the club. Stand out there in line, you know, try to dress right, look right, and they finally pick you and let you go in. Now you're not an outsider, you're an insider, and you in. But if you act up while you in, the bouncer will bounce you back out. And everybody knows once you've been kicked out, it's hard to get back in again. And, and, and the Christians frame that in words like, well, you need to do X, Y, Z to get right, get back right with God. You couldn't get right with God in the first time. So God got right with you. That's what the Bible says. God was in Christ, reconciling the sin of the world to himself. And, and so you got to understand that that's just not true. And the, and the biblical proof of that is if God was so holy, he can't look at sin. If God don't like sinners, if God don't talk to sinners, if God don't listen to sinners, then when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, then God would have never came back again. But when Adam and Eve sinned, did God show back up? So that don't mean separate, does it? He's still right there like he's always been. What does the word Emmanuel mean? 
What? God where? With who? With us? Hmm. Why would a God that's going to separate from you call his name Emmanuel? God with us. So that's the lie of religion. It tries to make you think God ain't with you. God's always been with you. God has never been a God to wait and see what you're going to do, God. God's always been a God that's right there in the middle of all your mess with you. God don't want it. He's not the author of it, but he will not. See, see, love will not protect you from the consequences of your choices. But love will never abandon you to your consequences. God will climb in your mess with you. And he's right there with you all the time. And he always has been. And if you'll just pause a minute and look back, you'll see that he was and that he is and that he always will be because that's who he is. He said, I'll never leave you. And the church tries to tell you you're separated, you're cut off. God's sitting on the front porch. and what? No, not, God ain't sitting on the front porch. The prodigal son far off was seen by the father, and he ran to him. God shows right up, talking to Adam and Eve. He didn't separate from them. Then we got a murderer. Cain kills Abel. What's God do? God's sitting down having a chat with him. Hey, buddy, what, where's your brother? What'd you do, man? And then they conversate and talk. Apparently God could. I mean, don't you think a guy that's just gotten killing his brother is a sinner? But God's talking to him. He's looking at him. He's communing with him. He said, God, they're going to want to kill me now because I killed my brother. God said, I'm going to protect you from that, son. I'm going to put a mark on you, and that way nobody will kill you. Does that sound like God that separates? No. All through the Bible, God never separates from man. No matter how rotten they do, how sorry they do, he doesn't separate. That's just a big, fat, religious lie. Man wants you to think God separated. Well, I think there's a verse in the Bible now. Wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute. I, I feel you. There's one verse in the Old Testament that says this. Your, God's, the prophet said, your sins, your sins have caused you to be separated from God. To cause his face not to shine. God's not the one behind that. See, when you do wrong, you think God hates your guts and then you run. You do the same thing and I do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. You do wrong, you believe the lie, you cast your brokenness, your hurt, your wounds upon the image of God. And you hide from this God that the day before loved you and provided everything called paradise for you. You think because you sin, all of a sudden God's turned into a demon? The disciples' New Testament did the same thing. They're in the storm. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're fearful of their life. Jesus, the Bible said, he came to them. He came to them walking on the water. What, what's their reaction to him coming to them? As a demon. It's a ghost. We're afraid. Jesus like, whoa, it's me. Don't be. Hey, it is I. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Hey, I'm not a demon. <laughs> don't rebuke me. It's me. You don't see good when you're in a storm. You don't perceive good. Do you know that you and I, we have the inability to recognize our own uh, accent? You don't hear your accent. But if you go somewhere else where they don't speak like you do and have your accent, they immediately, many people will point out, hey, you got an accent. <laughs> I love the way you say y'all <laughs> or whatever. I mean, it shows up wherever you, people have accents. 
but you don't recognize it. And so just like you don't have the ability to recognize your own accent, you and I do not have the ability to recognize all the things that we, the, the biases and the lens by which we view God and the Bible and things that we think are just crystal clear. We're influenced by everything that's happened to us, by what we've been told, by our surroundings. When we hear the term Christian, we automatically think of someone that, who started out on the outside, but then they prayed a prayer or they did something special that moved them from the outside. Now they're on the inside. And, but listen to me. If you take the words of Jesus seriously, then what you've got to admit that we're not dealing with outsiders and insiders in this world. We're dealing with people that, that see, and we're dealing with people who don't see. In other words, we're dealing with people that can see the truth, and we're, we're dealing with people that are blind to the truth. We're, we're dealing with people that are trusting God, and we're dealing with people that are not trusting God. We're, we're dealing with people that are believing in God, and we, we're dealing with people that don't believe in God. Uh, what, what kind of words are you talking about? That if you take the words of Jesus seriously. I mean, the list, I could go on and on and on. But, but you just help me. The Bible says the grace of God, and, and we're saved by grace. Right? And, and so we're, we're also saved by Jesus, right? Who saves us, grace or Jesus? They're the same. Thank you. Jesus is grace. Grace is not a six-week teaching at the church. Grace is not something we talk about every now and then. Grace is Jesus. The grace of God is Jesus. The first time the word grace appears in the Bible, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because grace has eyes, grace has hands, grace is a person. It's not a theology, it's a person. The grace of God has appeared to how many men? Is that what the Bible says? The grace of God has appeared to how many men? All mankind, all. That's church folk, non-church folk. That's everybody. The grace of God has appeared to all human beings. The Bible says Jesus Christ died once and for all. You see a theme developing here? Jesus said, it's not my will that any should perish, but how many come to repentance? And the word repentance don't mean lay in the altar and tell God how, what a bad person you've been. The word repent is meant to know you means change the way you think. Me and Jill was driving back through, you know, from Texas and they, and she pointed it out to me, and I'd already spotted it. Huge billboard, big bold letters in red, blocked out in red background, says, warning. And then right on it says, repent. Warning. She looked at me, she said, you see? I said, I saw it. She likes to provoke me. I saw it. I said, that sign there is nothing but a threat. Warning. Repent. Kingdom of heaven. That's not what that's not what the Bible says at all. It, no more than it don't say warning. You put that up there. The word repent means to change the way. If you're gonna enter into to, if you're gonna receive me, understand the good news. You're gonna have to think differently than you've ever thought before. And you're gonna have to think differently about things you thought you knew. My whole life as a minister has been an unwinding of what I 
what I thought. Jason, precious, my youth pastor. Man, when we was what we called, we was in the old building when we first started church. And back in those days, you recorded everything on cassettes. And I remember I got to a place one time in my ministry. I don't know how many years it was, five, six, seven, eight years. But I remember I instructed them to take every one of those big, we had these big wood racks of all the sermons I'd preach. You know, we had them all on fire. I said, take every one of them, dump them in the trash can. You remember that? I said, throw them all away. What? I said, throw them all away. Because I don't even believe that no more. I don't believe what I preach. Because I had come into a, a, a clear understanding that all, all that wasn't right. I wish I knew how good God was when I started out. That's my only regret. I wish somebody had convinced me back then of this God. Because I thought God was vindictive. I thought he was punishing. I thought he was doing all these things. I thought all the hell in my life was God paying me back. You understand how many times I've sat in my office as a pastor and I've had a young couple there that have, they, they, you know, that, that she had lost the baby, you know, pregnant, and then had a miscarriage and she lost the baby. I'm telling you, so many times I remember I've sat with couples that I knew well and didn't even know well. And I, so many times I've heard this same little litany. Uh, yeah, I, th I think probably the Lord's just paying us back for, for our promiscuity, you know, and, and, and before we got saved or whatever. That's why we lost, that's why he took the baby. Breaks my heart. This world's full of people that are running around like that. They think, they think, and a lot of it's caused to the preachers that preach the funerals. Well, the Lord never makes a mistake. The Lord took this. Well, the Lord needed to pluck a flower for the bouquet table of heaven. That's why your baby is laying up in that little casket. Because the Lord took him. The Lord gave him to you, but he didn't let you keep him but six months. And he decided he wanted him more than you. So he plucked him from you. Now, don't question God. Because he never makes a mistake. But the Lord wanted a flower for the bouquet table of heaven. Don't tell me how many times I've been preaching funerals with preachers that use that phrase. And you're looking out there at the family, and you're looking at mom and dad, and in their heart they hate God's guts, and I don't blame them. Because if I thought God was a God that would do like that, I would drop my Bible in the trash can on the way out and never crack it again. But that ain't who God is. He's got some really bad press, and most of that bad press has come from pulpits of people that don't even know who they're preaching about. They don't know him. Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you don't know the Father, you've never seen him, nor heard his voice not one time. This was the most religious people on the planet. He said, you search the scriptures in John 5 because you think that they speak it leads you to eternal life. But he said, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. He said, those scriptures that you're reading, they, don't, they testify of me. You're trying to make them memory verses or you're trying to, that ain't got nothing to do. These scriptures point to me. And if, this, if your Bible study doesn't lead you to a person, you're missing the point. We're not here to know the Bible. We're here to know Jesus, the author. We're here to know him. Bible said God's not willing that any should perish. Any. So that means there's, really, we're not dealing with outsiders and insiders. We're dealing with just all insiders that don't know they're an insider until we tell them. So is God a Christian? If you had not figured it out by now, hang on. No. He is not a Christian. Not if you mean by that 
that he's the God behind all this separation. And, and now be clear, he's not a Muslim either. He's not a Buddhist. He's none of that. Uh, God's not about separation. He, he relates to all of us as insiders and, because we're not separated from him. And we're just, it's just people that have not heard the good news. And when they hear the real good news, it's too good to be true news. And that's why when somebody preaches the gospel the way Paul preaches it in the Bible, they will be accused like Paul was. Wait a minute. He's saying we can just sin willy-nilly. I've never said that, but you'll get accused of that as a grace preacher. They said, they told Paul, well, if, if what you're preaching is true, then why don't we sin all the more that grace may abound? Paul replied to that, God forbid. That's not what I'm saying. He says, where sin abounds, grace has much more abounded. It's hyper abounded. So in other words, the Greek, I'm not making this stuff up. The, 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 the word translated abound, where, the, where sin doth abound. That means it's countable. It can be counted. It's a term that used of an amount that can be counted. But it says, but where sin abounded, grace doth much more hyper abound. Well, you're just one of those hyper grace preachers, guilty as charged. Wear it proudly. Because where it says grace hath much more abounded, it's a Greek word that says it cannot be counted. There's no limit to God's grace. Whatever your sin is, God's grace is off the chart bigger and better. The, the, the truth is that every human being is somewhere on the journey between belief and unbelief. And it's our privilege to bring light because now he's the light of the world, but we're the light now. Does they see that? The apostle Paul, he described these folks like this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, Paul, Paul said this, he said, the God of this world, talking about Satan here, has blinded their minds. He said they're just blind. Their minds have been blinded who do not believe. He said, unless the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul said, you got to understand, they're just blind. Their, their mind is clouded. they got a wrong view and image of God. Therefore, they got a wrong view and image of themselves. Therefore, they have a wrong view and image of the world around them. Remember that Philippian jailer? I, I refer to him often. This guy is a heathen of a heathen, okay? He is a Philippian jailer charged with those apostles' care and to be, you know, to keep them in bonds. And you know the story in Acts. It's in Acts 16. Uh, Paul and Silas have been beaten. They're chained together. It's midnight. The Bible tells us that. They, they begin to sing and praise God, and they did it so loud, the Bible says all the other prisoners heard them. I'm sure some of the other prisoners said, y'all shut up and go to sleep. It's midnight. What are y'all doing? I don't know if they, they didn't know. But at midnight, they're singing and praising God. Praying, singing, communing with God. And, and, and there is a supernatural uh, occurrence, the jail begins to shake. Every prisoner, not, not just Paul and Silas that was praying, here it is, every prisoner's bands came off. See, what you do affects everybody. Every prisoner's bands come off because two people prayed, everybody got the chains fell off of them. 
and, and, and the doors open. And so the jailer recognizes this occurrence, and he knows what's going to happen because he thinks as soon as that door opened and blowed off the hinges or whatever it did, that these prisoners took off and that he's going to be killed slowly and painfully by the king for losing these prisoners. So he whoops out his sword and fist to thrust it through his own chest and kill himself, right? And Paul sees this out of the darkness. Paul sees it, and he says to him, hey, do thyself no harm, for we are all still here. He was amazed nobody run because they're not running from nothing. They ain't afraid. And when he saw the demonstration of God's power, and these apostles, he looks at Paul and says this question. Listen to me now. And I know a lot of you heard me say this a hundred times. You're going to hear it more. Listen. He said, what must, the jailer says, what must, he's talking to the apostle Paul. What must I do to be saved? I like to say what Paul didn't say. He didn't say what your average church in America would say, if that question was asked. And it depends on what church you ask it. Well, they would say, well, you need to, Close your eyes, bow your head, confess your sins, admit you're a sinner and need a Savior, ask God to save you, and he'll save you. That, that would be what some would say. Some would say something similar to that, but then they would say you're not really saved until you're baptized. So you have to get baptized to be you know, really sure you're saved. Some would say you can't be baptized you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like we do here. Some would say the only way you can be saved is you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And if anybody baptized you in something besides that, then you're deceived. You're not going to heaven. You're not saved. And also that same group would also say you have to be part of our denomination. Because if you're not part of our denomination, you're not going to heaven. Everybody else is deceived and going to hell. And we're the only ones that's got it figured out. And I'm not making that up either. Some would say, but unless you walk around on Saturday morning and wake people up who's trying to sleep in and hand them these tracks, and you're not part of our group, then you're not going to heaven. Everybody else is deceived. We got it figured out. We're the only ones. Somebody says, if you're not part of our group that has a great choir that we have and Spend us a little bit of time on bicycles with white shirts and small black thin ties. If you're not part of that group, then you're not going to heaven because we're the only ones that's got it figured out. And so to go to heaven, you got to be in our group. And the list and litany of that continues on and on because that is man who has come up with a way to bridge the gap, perceived gap, to get back in because religion has taught them they are out. But the truth of the gospel is that God is dealing with all of his children. Some just don't know they're his children yet. It, it, you, you, they've just not been told and illuminated to the truth. Now, now, when that jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Here's the simple answer that I wish the church could get. What was, what was this great apostle's answer? Did he not understand how people are converted, become believers? Sure he did. He just simply looks at the jailer and says, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. 
Because we're dealing with people that's on a journey between unbelief and belief. And that jailer's just one of those millions of people that's on a journey. And he don't know that he's an insider. He don't know that God loves him. He don't know that Jesus has already paid for and wiped away all of his sin on the cross. He don't know that God's not mad with him. And that's why the Apostle Paul doesn't mention the word sin, unlike the church. Because the Apostle Paul knew that when Jesus died on the cross, the sin of the world was taken away. That He was not lying when he said it is finished. And when John pointed at him at his baptism, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. First Peter says, he said, Not only is he the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He has removed the sin problem. Therefore, that's not God. God's not angry at you anymore. God's not dealing with you in regard to your sin. He's dealing with you in regard to his son. You mean my sins are forgiven? I didn't ask God. God don't need your permission, never did, to forgive you. Your crying, slopping, bobbing, whatever all you do, that don't make God forgive. There's only one thing the Bible says makes God forgive of sin, and that is the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is how much forgiveness of sin? None. When's the last time God shed blood on the cross? That includes your sins. You, I wasn't born yet. That's called future sin dealt with. The sin now of the world. Not sins. I stole a piece of candy. Now I got to confess it. That's religion that does that to you. Nobody in the Bible told somebody how to get saved by confessing their sins. That's church stuff. See, people don't like this because they squirm because that means that they've been deceived for years. And they will fight over it, kill each other over it. And I was one of those guys that preached the heaven out of that. I did all the things that I now stand in opposite. I did it because I'm a Polly Parrot echo and the preachers has gone before me. But when I started reading the book for myself, that, that ain't in there. Didn't Paul know? Is that jailer didn't get saved? Paul said, just believe on Lord Jesus and you should be saved. And your whole household. He carries him to the house and the whole household gets saved. Just like Paul said. At, uh, Romans 10 no, I've never met a, a church affiliation. Any, any church that's got any sense will say Romans 10 tells you how to get born again. And in Romans chapter 10, the word sin does not appear. Wonder why that is. If we're telling people how they get saved and the word of sin don't appear, is that a typo? Or does sin is not the problem? Jesus didn't say, I have come because they need forgiveness. It happened and then it was included in his sacrifice. But he said, I've come that they might have what? Life. Because the problem is sin brought death. And I am about life. So Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 don't mention the word sin, yet it tells you how to be born again. It says this if you, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. For with the heart man believeth, and with the mouth confession, listen, there's that word, confession is made unto righteousness. So now we have the Greek word that's translated confession, and we're, and we, but when the average Christian hears the word confess, first thing pops in their head is what? Sin. Tell me I'm wrong. 
When you hear the word confession, you first thing you think, sin, booth, Father, forgive me for I sin, how long have been sin, you know, and all that. You, that's where you go. Word confession ain't got nothing to do with sin. The word confession, translated confession, the Greek word homo logos. Homo logos. Homo, same kind, logos, God's word. It's telling you to agree with God's word. It's telling you to be of the same kind, same mind. Agree with God's word. Agree with God's word. What does God say? I confess that I'm righteous. What made you righteous? Doing righteous? No. What made you righteous? Jesus. His righteousness was gifted to me. Paul said the gift of righteousness which you have received. It's a gift. Right? So you confess. That's why that we all grew up with the, with the principles that we see in the Word of God. Let the sick say, I am whole, healed. Let the poor say, I am rich. See, what, what are we doing in that? We are agreeing with God. In spite of our circumstances and what it looks like and feels like, we're saying, no, I agree with God. It's what they sung about today. I agree with God, God's Word. All of His promises are yes and amen. I agree with God. Well it, don't look, it, well, it don't matter what it looks like. You, you agree with God. L let me finish with this. Christianity is not a religion, so to speak. But I just want you to hear this thing. Christianity is not a religion in the sense, Christianity is the proclamation of the end of all religion. It, it, it's, it's not a new religion, and it's not even the best of all the other religions. The Christianity is the sign that... that it, there, this is not a religion. It's a relationship. The, the cross, if it's a sign of anything, the cross is a sign that God has handled once and forever the problem of sin and death on the cross. And, and, and listen, and God did that without your participation or mine, and God did that without requiring a human being to do one single religious thing. Religion can't do a thing about the world's problems, and it never could. Christianity is not the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. And that's a real good place to clap and stand up right there, I tell you. Amen. Well, if somebody says, are you a Christian, you're not going to respond. I never respond to that until I get a definition of what they mean. I've had people ask me, are you a Christian, Brother Dale? Are you a Christian? Well, let me say this before I answer that. What does that mean? Would you define that term for me, please? I've had people say, are you charismatic? What, what does that mean to you? What do you, what do you think that means? No, I'm not that. I mean, when I started my church, uh, Cornerstone Christian, we got, Jason would remember, we got all kind of, we, we would get mail sent to us addressed Cornerstone Baptist Church. I said, well, I guess we're Baptist now. Somebody changed it and then asked me. After many years, I dropped the Christian out of the name. And we were just simply known as Cornerstone Church. Because I had people thinking that I was affiliated with a Christian. There's a Christian denomination. There's a Christian denomination. And it was, you know, spreading that I, I was a part of that denomination. 
I would say that was better than the rumor that I was connected with David Koresh from Waco, that I was one of his sons. I didn't really appreciate, you know, that one. Somebody said that because in our church, we also, we had one whole wall that had flags hanging because we were really involved in those days in a lot of missionaries. And we didn't just put up flags for decoration. We only put up flags that we either had sent someone or we were giving into those nations. And we had a whole one side of the church filled with flags of different countries. One of those flags was Israel. And we were contributing to bringing Jewish people from Russia and the Ukraine. And, and there has been a tremendous exodus for many decades now of Jewish people who were not born in Israel but have come home to Israel. And some of that, I believe, is absolute fulfillment of things in Scripture. But, but because of that Star of David that we flew, that blue and white flag, they said, well, that guy Aaron Waco, he, had that, he flew that same flag. He's if you don't know something, people are just about slap crazy. They, Without the knowledge and the light and the revelation of God and his love for them, we make very foolish statements, and we want to have a religion. So, And then we say, God's for my religion. He's against your religion. God loves me because I've got it right, and you've got it wrong. And all God's trying to do is lead us to his son, who will lead us to the face of the Father in that relationship of the Trinity. And I love you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I do. And I'm not after Christianity, but I'm after us understanding that don't let us be involved in anything that fuels separation from God or from one another. These other brothers in this city and town that preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, they are not our enemies. They are not our enemies. They may not see everything we see, and that's fine. Everybody's on the journey here. I'm glad somebody didn't judge me when I started preaching in 19, early 80s. Because, man, I was hellfire brimstone. I dangle, I'm the guy, I dangle you over hell on a rotten stick. My wife knows I'm telling the truth. Man, when I got through preaching on hell in churches, I'd have all the deacons, everybody be in order to try and get saved. I was, I was, I'd been a paramedic for 20, you know, paramedic 20 years, so I got some stories that I could emphasize how bad a burn is. I'd tell them stories, man, and just, because I thought you could kind of, you know, scare the Hades out of people and make them run to Jesus. I wish I'd have known back then that God is good enough by himself and he does not need the incentive of hell to get you to love him. In fact, the Bible says that whole deal there, Whatever your perception of that is has absolutely zero to do with you. Zero. Jesus never intended it, nor anyone else. It's not ever to be used as an incentive to get people to accept Jesus. What a, what a terrible God that if, if you've got to have that to get you to love him. Well, I'm the bridegroom and you're the bride. I'd like to give you a little invitation if you'll believe on me and enter into a covenant and be my wife, I'll love you forever. I'll be so sweet and good to you, girl. I'll just be the best husband. I'll be, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the man at the well. I mean, I'll be that to you. 
I love you, and I'm inviting you to believe in me and accept me as your, as your savior, as your husband. You'll be the bride, I'm the bridegroom. We're going to marry us up with the lamb, hallelujah, Jesus, and all that. I mean, come on, girl. Wait a minute, I'm going to say this before you answer now. Hang on before you answer the invitation. If you tell me no now, if you tell me no, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to snatch you up. I'm going to throw you into the lake of fire. And I'm going to burn you with pain you can't imagine, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, forever. Choose wisely. <laughs> That's the message the church has put out. And you want people to love that God. That God there is sadistic, punitive, diabolical. I've met him. And that's not him. Last thing I'm saying, if God's fingerprints is on anything in your life or in this world, you can always see and believe this, that there is redemptive value. God will never put his hand to anything without redemptive. When you, when you wreck your life and you, you, you screw it up royally, and we've all done that in our lives at one point or another. But when you do that, God's right in the mix with you, climbs right in there with you, and he didn't, he's not the author of it, but he will work by his grace to redeem you out of that mess. He didn't cause it. He's not the author behind your pain. He's the finisher and the author of your faith in him. And he loves you. And, and, and you just got to know he's never separated from you. And if you just look around in your worst, darkest times, wasn't he there? He's always been there. Father, thank you for loving us. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for that. I pray that the revelation of that you've never separated from us, we've separated from you. We ran and hid. We did like Adam and Eve come up with our own religion called Fig Leaf Church, and we tried to fix it. But we couldn't, and we can't, and religion never can. Father, thank you that the cross says religion's over. Relationship is restored. I pray that you would help us to enter into that relationship that you have with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that we see the joy and the love that you have. And that we become and participate in what you've always included us in. Is your love. I pray that there's people that don't know that illuminate their heart right now. And I pray that the blindness that Paul talked about from their minds would go now. And that their mind would be open to the truth, and they would do like the jailer. They'd simply believe and be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you. We're down here. If we want prayer for any reason, please come up. God bless you.